This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. Historians and local old-timers tell us that once Tampa Bay was overflowing with delicious oysters and that rivers like the Manatee River were once so full of mullet that they roiled the water and their noise would keep you awake at night. We're talking about seafood this week on Florida Matters. Coming up, we'll talk with Ed Childs. He's the son of the late Governor Lawton Childs, the owner of three restaurants and a founding member of the Gulf Shellfish Institute, which promotes sustainable aquaculture. But first, I'm speaking with Gary Mormino. He's a retired history professor at the University of South Florida and now teaches a class on food and history. Gary's done a lot of research and writing on this topic. Gary, thanks so much for being here. Delighted to be here. Thanks. So what I wanted to talk about was how our sea life has changed and our seafood. Paint a picture, if you can, for what it was like maybe a hundred years ago in the Tampa Bay area as far as the kinds of seafood that we had access to. A bounty, a richness, a variety that we cannot imagine today. I realize as I've gotten older and, and look back, much of the food and history class is about loss. And nowhere is that more evident than seafood and shellfish. I used to offer a tour of Ybor City for students, and we would always stop at uh, Agliano Seafood. Uh, Buster Aliano, he pronounced Agliano, fourth generation in the family. They had been here in Tampa since the late 19th century. When we greeted him, he would always ask the same question first. So what's the name of your fishmonger? And uh, he said, are you kidding me? You don't know the first name of your fishmonger? Much of our seafood now comes from someplace else. Someplace far away. And by the way, Agliano's is out of business now. Think of how few independent seafood merchants are around anymore. You know, it's, it's a reflection of the economy we live in and we've inherited I want to ask you about a few types of specific seafood when you talk about the bountifulness in the past. I've never heard of oysters coming from anywhere except Apalachicola, and I was surprised to read an article of yours talking about how plentiful they once were in Tampa Bay. The uh, earliest oyster description might be uh, in the 1820s when there was no Tampa yet. There was a fledgling Fort Brook. One of the soldiers was a man named Lieutenant George McCall, extraordinary figure, who wrote enough entries in a diary that they were published. But he was uh, writing that one of the most delicious oysters he ever ate was harvested in Tampa Bay. Yeah, in your article you were talking about Crystal River even in the 1940s. So less than 100 years ago they were talking about gigantic oysters there. I think in 1989... It might have been 1980. Sports Illustrated began an article. It was a feature article on Tampa Bay. And it began, Tampa Bay, once the glory of the state, is now filth. An oyster will never grow in Tampa Bay again. Another thing that you quoted in your article was from Dunedin, dredging. Yes. And you talked about how ruinous dredging has been to shellfish and to certain kinds of seafood. And you quoted someone named Al Chikowich, a fish camp owner. You could walk 
out offshore at low tide and pick up a dinner full of scallops. Now the silt is up to your knees. And he was talking about Ozona. I'm not sure where Ozona is. Uh, North uh, Pinellas, I believe. That's one of my favorite stories, by the way. This lovely community of Ozona, still not very developed. It's across the channel from Dunedin, Saint, I think it's St. Joseph Sound. In the 1960s, developers started building what they call finger canals, whereas you'd take, let's say, two pieces of waterfront property. If you dredged and filled them, you, you could have dozens of waterfront homes. The problem is that messed up the ecosystem and it was a lot of silt and it ruined the seagrass, and you cut down the mangroves. I mean, this is a very familiar refrain and and, uh, kind of eulogy for our state. Now you can't do that, but for decades, developers took advantage of it. And the seafood took a hit. Yes. What I'm wondering is now we've recognized how ruinous that kind of practice is to a lot of our sea life. Are things coming back? Well, I wish I could be more encouraging. Let's let's look at Apalachicola, for example. This is a community that has embraced the, the importance of environmental control. Apalachicola has fewer residents today than it had 150 years ago, 7,500, 12,000 people. The county is not much more than that, Franklin County. In Apalachicola, you cannot use mechanical dredges. You must use the old-fashioned wooden, I suppose now, metal dredges. But the oyster harvest has just plummeted. When we took a group of teachers there, I remember Lynn Martina, whose family has been in the oyster business there for three or four generations, pointed to two trucks for sale. And she said five years ago, this would have been 2007, those trucks were delivering oysters to Jacksonville and Tampa twice a week. There, there were for sale signs on them. The problem is for oysters to thrive, you need this delicate blend of fresh water and salt water. Too much of one is, is ruinous. And the Apalachicola River is one of the greatest rivers and estuaries in the world. The, the sheer amount of seafood coming out of there. The problem is Fulton County, Georgia. Georgia. There are two rivers that create the Apalachicola River. They need the water, too. And think of the politics of Fulton County, Atlanta, and Franklin County with 12,000 people. Who's going to win? And (laughs) it's still in court. It is. What are some of the other things? I was thinking mullet. Um, There was a a very elderly man that I spoke to years and years ago who used to talk about the Manatee River as just sort of boiling with, (laughs) with mullet. Now, mullet clearly aren't as plentiful as they used to be. I think probably during the big development booms, um, when the mangroves were being cut down, which is the nursery for the mullet, they probably took a big hit. But have regulations trying to protect the the mangroves? Has that sort of helped things come back? What have have we seen? It probably has. And a good book for, for listeners to read, Jack Davis, a USF student, by the way, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Gulf. And he talks about the importance of mangroves uh, in sustaining Florida's fisheries. And uh, the worst thing you can do is cut down mangroves. And there's this constant battle between developers who want pristine beaches without mangroves. But they are the great breeding grounds. You talked about the, the mullet boil. You read these accounts, 19th, even as late as the 1930s and 40s, of 
when mullet would run at night, people couldn't sleep. The mullet had this eek sound, and, and there's so much of them, it, it sounds like the water is boiling. We probably haven't seen that in a while. But yeah. uh, mullet, if we exhaust the mullet, we're all in big trouble because that is seemingly a sustainable fish. Um, grouper's doing well. Yes. I still see a lot of gr- fried grouper sandwiches on the menu. The grouper story is is a Florida parable in a lot of ways. I, I love to talk about grouper in class and have students look at seafood advertisements from the 1930s and 40s. And one of the things they come back and say, we can't find it. So what does that mean if the top fisher, it was almost predictable. Red Stamper was always very good. And Pompano was always very, uh, and then Mullet for poor people. But groupers just didn't seem to be there. And then I found this article. It's uh, during World War I, as Europe is starving, the St. Petersburg Evening Independent newspaper publishes a piece called Grouper and Grits. And it's, it's one of the most amazing editorials I've read. They said, St. Petersburg needs an iconic food. It should be grouper and grits. And they said, uh, for a long period, seafood merchants have thrown away grouper because they can't sell it. Or use it for fertilizer because the public won't buy it. And they, they were making a pitch saying, when properly prepared, grouper can be very tasty. It's ugly. <laughs> it is an ugly fish. None of it was used for food or little of it. Mm. So Gruber, Buster told me, back to Buster Aliano, Buster told me that he thinks he's the reason Gruber became popular. He said in the 1960s, Ann McDuffie of the Tampa Tribune came by and said, Buster, I get all these letters from women that Pompano, Red Snapper, Kingfish, Kobe are too expensive. Isn't there a, a cheaper fish that everyone likes? And he said, Gruber should be eaten more. It's it's a white fish. It's not fishy tasting. And he said it took off because it became a substitute for cod on sandwiches. And and as Buster would say, think about this. If you fillet a fish, you batter it, deep fry it, put it on a bun with lettuce, tomato, mayo. You could fry your shoe and <laughs> yeah, put exactly. sauce on it. <laughs> but grouper now is $24 a pound. Black grouper fillets Grouper uh, will be an interesting fish to monitor. Already, you, you occasionally you have seasons. They're, they're worried about over-harvesting. You know, at least you know it's local, kind of yes, local. I yes. mean, it's caught off, the Gulf of far Mexico. off Florida, but at least in the Gulf. Yes. It's not frozen in China and then shipped two and weeks ago. Some listeners may remember the famous St. Petersburg Times expose on grouper about 10, 12 years ago. The late Terry Tomlin was a student in the Florida Studies Program at USF St. Pete. He goes to the Times and said, I'd like to do an expose to see if if merchants are substituting other fish for grouper. They had takeout, like 24 items takeout. Half of the fish being labeled grouper was faux grouper, Asian catfish, pollock. One of the 24 was labeled a protein. <laughs> they didn't know. They didn't know what it was. <laughs> what it was. Gross. But we really don't have any. We have, it's just all on faith. Trust, we have to trust yes. it. We need our local, local fishmonger. Your buster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need our buster Agliano. Yes. Gary Mormino is a retired history professor from the University of South Florida, still teaching a class on food and history. Gary, thank you so much for being with me. Delighted to be here. Thanks. 
You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. We asked listeners to share their comments about seafood and heard from Robert King on Facebook, who echoed some of what Gary Mormino said. He wrote, What was once an almost unlimited seafood resource is being fought over by competing interests and said the state's unwillingness to manage growth and destruction of the natural environment depletes the availability of seafood for all groups. We also got an email from Steve Davies, who argues that with red tide and other harms threatening marine ecosystems and animals, it's reckless and cruel for humans to eat seafood at all. Well, many people are still eating plenty of seafood for now, but there are efforts underway in our area to make the industry more environmentally sustainable. We'll hear more about that after a short break. I'm Robin Sessingham. We'll be right back. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. We're talking about our state's seafood industry. Just before the break, we heard from food historian Gary Mormino about the types of fish Floridians ate in the past and how development and pollution affected some of our sea life. Now I'm speaking with Ed Childs. The son of the late Governor Lawton Childs is the owner of several seafood restaurants, the Sandbar in Anna Maria, Beach House in Bradenton Beach, and Mara Vista Dockside in Longboat Key. He's also a big proponent of keeping Florida's seafood industry sustainable and local. Ed, thanks for being here. Real pleasure to be here with you. Um, tell me about the Gulf Shellfish Institute. You're encouraging shellfish aquaculture? Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, that was started about four or five years ago because of our interest in utilizing the resources that our area has. I got hooked up with a really bright guy by the name of Kurt Himmel. Kurt is one of the foremost bivalve experts in the country. Bivalves meaning clams, oysters, all kind of two-shelled organisms. That's right. Mm -hmm. A lot of them we want to eat. And so what he does is grow them in his hatchery, and then they go out to the clam farmers who put them out on the shellfish-approved leases. We have 287,000 acres of shellfish-approved water in the state of Florida. Only 1% is leased. We are sitting here on the north end of the only place in the country that has three national estuaries on its border. This is overlaid at a time when 92% of the seafood that we eat in the United States is imported. Right, and we're going to come back to that. Now, where is this estuary? Where is this Shellfish Institute? Kurt's facility is in Terracia. Uh, but our headquarters, we're a very small footprint, is at the Port of Manatee for the Gulf Shellfish Institute. Okay, so Terracia, that's the southern end of the Skyway. Sunshine Skyway. That's exactly right. But the Port, port of Manatee, that doesn't seem like it would be very clean water if it's a port with shipping. You know, they have the FWC Aquaculture Park there. What they had at FWC is a saltwater pump and permits to pump saltwater in from the edge of their property to do the snook and the redfish beds in there. And so that worked very well for that. You know, there's a lot of things you can do to get the water quality right. So What we hear from food historians is that at one time Tampa Bay was just abundant with oysters. It was one of the main oyster hatcheries in the state, like Apalachicola. They went away. Now, we did hear, we got a comment from Brian and Lindsay Rossegger from the Lost Coast Oyster Company. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they said 
There's a lower portion of Lower Tampa Bay surrounding Terracea Aquatic Preserve exhibiting water quality conditions ideal for raising our favorite bivalves. Presently, there are a number of aquaculturists raising shellfish in Tampa Bay. Two Dock Shellfish yes, are among ma'am. these, you know, though. And the Lost Coast Oyster Company was recently awarded a submerged land lease, there you go. which will be the first wide-scale commercial oyster farming effort in Tampa Bay to date. Well, I look forward to meeting those folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know them now, but we certainly buy a tremendous amount of clams from Two Docks. Tampa Bay, in our area, has a little bit too high of salinity for oysters. They want a little bit more fresh water mixed in. But it's perfect for clams, right? So nutrient level, water quality, and water temperature, this is as good a place as any place in the world to grow clams. Warmer water grows clams twice as fast. So you think about that for the efficiency and for what it costs the guy to bring that crop up. But we really need to be doing things to incentivize our clam farmers. Let's look at the big five of aquaculture. Shrimp, salmon tilapia, catfish, all of those have environmental issues. Waste stream, antibiotics, hormones. Bivalves have zero negative environmental impact. Conversely, they have a huge environmental positive Mm -hmm. impact, right? They filter. Mm -hmm. And small clams filter five gallons of water a day. And large broodstock clams filter 25 gallons a day. So what happened in the red tide for the clam farmers? The clam farmers like Carter Davis down in Pine Island, who's Kurt Himmel's protege, his clams have stayed on the bottom too long because of red tide closures, and they've gotten too big. Those big clams don't have the value. He's not going to plant another crop if his crop he couldn't get paid for it this year. So what we've said through a program that we did with the Community Redevelopment Authority in Braden Beach is, We did a project to plant clams, and there's been a lot of that lately. Mm -hmm. And we said, now we're going to realize that the value of that big, large, heavy, thick-shelled broodstock clam that will filter 25 gallons of water a day, the value to the citizens of Florida is that clam to stay in the water. That's one of the programs that we're working on so with the Shellfish Institute. So you're trying to get the Institute. state to buy some of those clams to use? We're saying for- to the state, this farmer doesn't have an insurance policy, mm-hmm. right? There's no safety net up under him. We need clams. We need to clean water. We need to promote seagrass. If we're going to heal the Gulf of Mexico, what's coming in the, from the Mississippi, we can't do anything about. But we sure can do something, and we are doing things in our area and with the Gulf Shellfish Institute to make sure that this precious place that is the nursery for the Gulf of Mexico will become more healthy, and bivalves are one of the major ways that you do that. We're serving these clams in our restaurant, but we're also recognizing the value of putting in the water and leaving it and let them grow up bigger and bigger and bigger and produce a lot more clams. Become part of the ecosystem. To become part of the ecosystem. Let me ask you, um, in your role as restaurant owner, I'm really interested in where are you getting your seafood? We get it from uh, local fishermen and six or seven different seafood distributors like Sammy's in St. Pete. So we went from all, uh, you know, mostly imported shrimp to almost all domestic shrimp now. You know, most of the crab that you see is the blue swimmer crab, and that comes from Asia. But we worked hard, and we found a supplier down in Pine Island that can get us fresh-picked crab now. But you've got to work on that. Mm -hmm. So what can you get locally? How long have you got? (laughs) 
right? A lot of these things are underutilized and not appreciated, but they're fabulous. Mullet, mackerel, sheephead, whiting, amberjack, kingfish, snapper, grouper, clams. Are these all on your menu? And I'm missing a bunch. Every single one of them. In season, I guess. Well, just when, you know, you don't get the whiting all the time. We get that rarely, but we love to serve it. You know, we get kingfish right now. We've got kingfish hanging now. We're dry aging kingfish. Come have some grouper collars for $14. It's the best meat on a grouper. And I threw it away for 35 years. So now I take those collars and I show people what a good, you know, and eat that thin, that crispy thin from the outside down. My job is to promote local, sustainable, underutilized seafood and show that by doing that, I can fill seats and I can do well and do right at the same time. How expensive is selling seafood like that versus buying from a distributor salmon or some of the fish you can get from Vietnam or China? Well, it's uh, it's certainly a lot more expensive. You know, that's why so much of that seafood comes from Asia, because it's cheap. You know, what they're doing when they set out to do it and their efficiency at doing it because nobody's saying no and the labor is super cheap, and they've gotten way ahead. They want to control that. They're smart. Mm-hmm. So you're saying we just can't keep up with the demand. That's why we're importing so much. We can absolutely keep up with the demand. We need to ramp up the production. We need to get in the game. If we can incentivize clam farmers, that's economic development. That's our heritage. That's working waterfront. I'm ready to go start my clam farm. Come on and get in. The water's fine. (laughs) But we need to make sure we're not nutrient loading, all right? That's what I want to ask you. Why don't we see more fish farms? When you talk about aqua culture. What about fish farming? Well, you're seeing more. You know, the largest salmon farm in the world is coming to your state. Dry land, recirculating aquaculture system, high tech. Where will that be? Very ambitious. Homestead. What about sea-based farming? Well, NOAA has finally, after 15 years of study, said that they're going to allow, I think it's six projects, so open water, big nets, like they do the open blue cobia project, like they do with salmon and tuna in the Gulf of Mexico. And the closest place to that 110-foot water where you need to be so that the pins can be lowered and raised depending on what's going on, storms and all of that, is the port of Manatee. But this has the danger of being polluting, though, right, when you have a... a If you have an open water pin 110 miles out from the shore in the Gulf of Mexico with circulating water, there shouldn't be any issue Mm -hmm. of pollution. You know, there's fish out there in the water, and there's their waste stream, and that goes in, and that's all part of the environment. Why haven't we done this yet? Because I'm thinking that's why the fish that we're importing from other countries is so inexpensive. Well, I think, you know, uh, one was NOAA wouldn't allow it. They studied it for a long, long time, Mm -hmm. uh, probably rightly so. And two is... You know, there's, there is more capital coming into this. Uh, the moons are getting lined up that there's going to be more aquaculture projects, and there's going to be more support, I believe, because the policymakers, they've got their hair on fire because people are pretty upset. They want to be able to say what they're doing. The new governor has certainly been a breath of fresh air in this regard. So I hope he will be Florida's environmental governor, and I hope he will address these water quality issues and not just about what's coming out of Okeechobee, but what's going in it and all of the other spectrum of things, anybody that is doing anything to pollute inland or marine waters. Let's just talk a little bit about you grew up in Florida. 
Well, I grew up in, in Lakeland, Polk County, and uh, I never remember not being in Anna Maria because we always you went, know, went to the beach there. Mm-hmm. And I started my business there when I uh, got in the restaurant business when I got out of school with a political science degree and had to find a way to make a living. So we ended up in Anna Maria in, in 1978, and I'm still there. And you've always hunted and fished. And I'm just wondering, I'm calling on your powers of observation of what changes that you've seen to the beaches, to the sea life. Well, you know, in a lot of areas, it's better. If you look at our water They've quality. They've let the mangroves grow back. Well, yeah, and, and we've, there's been more attention to that, more regulation in that regard. Look, our water quality issues, our seagrass in, in our area in Manatee County, uh, our county still has more to do, but they have done a tremendous amount of lowering what kind of wastewater is getting discharged, and the, the figures are showing that on seagrass. On the snapper catch, you know, the snappers are back because of the way they've been regulating those. A lot of people didn't like that regulation, but there's a better snapper bite uh, going on than there has been in my lifetime, I think. Mullet are healthy. Uh, you know, as long as we don't get harmful algal blooms, our waters are in, are, are in good shape. That's you know? great Again, news. that's why they're yeah. ready to go clams. So you're saying that the regulations that have been in place, as you said, for your lifetime, that have limited fishing, overfishing, and are trying to improve water quality, are starting to show some results. Well, not just starting to. They have been for for t- last 20 years showing results. Yeah. Okay. But that's not happening everywhere, right? That's our area because we've been focusing on that. And there's a lot of other areas. The people down in, you know, where it's coming out of the Caloosahatchee and all of that, they're in, they're in worse shape than we are. Sarasota Bay in the south end is in worse shape than we are. Their uh, numbers actually are going the wrong way in terms of that water quality in there. And, and I think they're seriously trying to address that. What do you think the reason for that is? Uh, septic tanks and stormwater runoff. And again, it's a whole spectrum of issues. It's never one thing. What about development? It's a big player in all of this. Agriculture is a big player too. What we all do on our lawns is a big player. How we value our areas. Do we do like we've done in Manatee County and, and buy more environmentally sensitive lands and make sure that they're done? Are we doing things to enhance and protect these three national estuaries? You don't have to do this. I mean, you you know, you you make a good living. This seems um, a calling for you, and I'm just wondering what, what it is that's making you care so much. Well, we don't do it because it's easy, but we do it because it's important. Look, tourism is 12% of the world economy. My business, everybody in the tourist business needs to be as sustainable as they can be so that we have an opportunity that our kids and our grandkids get to experience what we experience. This, this is emotional for you. You love Florida. Yeah. Uh, woe be it if, you know, we're the generation that let slip away. Ed Childs, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Well, it was pretty good till the end. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's it for today's show. You can find today's show on our website, WUSFnews.org, or look for the Florida Matters podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is produced by Stephanie Colombini and is a production of WUSF Public Media. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.